There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Dr. Heather Ann Thompson. Dr. Thompson is a historian at the University of Michigan and is a Pulitzer Prize and Bancroft Prize winning author of Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. Let's hear what she has to say about the Attica Prison Uprising. Dr. Thompson, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. So can you start uh, by giving us some backstory on prison conditions in the United States during the uh, 60s and early 70s? Sure. Um, Well, uh, people will be uh, probably appalled to know that they were in many ways better than they are today. And they were very, very grim. Uh, The 1960s and the 1970s was a period on the one hand of Uh, a lot of programming, a lot of things that we lost in the prison system as it grew and grew and grew after the 1970s. But at the same time, this was prison and it was incredibly brutal. It was very inhumane. And the, the thing was, it was the 60s though, and it was the 70s. And so there were civil rights movements everywhere, uh, really calling attention to injustice in the United States. And so we came to know of prison conditions being so bad because there was really attention put on the inside that had not been there for a while. So we got to see at places like, for example, the notorious Attica prison that people were being fed on 63 cents a day and they 
uh, had horrendous medical care. Uh, they uh, couldn't uh, get parole very easily or the rules were so capricious. People would just linger in the prison even if they had parole, not being able to get a job on the outside and so forth. So, uh, you know, it was a it was a really racist, brutal system as it is today, but at least was in a moment where people were trying to change that. And we read that there was a, a prisoner's rights movement that was emerging at the time. Uh, can you speak more to that? And how was word spreading among the prisoners? Well, you know, again, so many of the people on the inside were coming from the streets of America's inner cities and, uh, you know, or coming back from Vietnam, um, maybe in prison because they had come back from Vietnam and were, you know, drug addicted uh, because of PTSD or uh, being arrested, frankly, because of protesting and being a more of a rebel on the outside. So the prisons were actually filled with people who were activists in the 60s on the outside. And of course, if you look at the demographics of who was on the inside, like today, it was deeply skewed. In other words, the people committing all the crimes weren't necessarily the people getting arrested for them. And so you had a really overly racialized a population, a population that was uh, o- overly poor, uh, because of course they had the, the, the least representation. And so it wasn't, uh, not only did word spread from the inside to the outside, but of course, you know, people in prison are remain human beings. And so it, one didn't need someone to persuade you that your civil rights were being violated if you had been locked in a cell for days on end, not getting out, or you couldn't even read a book or a magazine because someone would burn it or take it away. So people were, you know, rising up to right realizations of their own rights, you know, quite, quite naturally. They didn't have to be a radical to end up uh, feeling very much a part of the prisoner rights movement. Now, particularly at the Attica prison, what were the dynamics uh, between guards and inmates? How were they being treated? What what were the tensions like inside the prison? Well, it's interesting because, you know, even from the perspective of the guards who in Attica, Attica's in a tiny town in upstate New York. The guards were all working class uh, white kids who had no place else to work after themselves coming back from Vietnam or uh, just graduating from high school. And the prisoners were overwhelmingly, not all, but overwhelmingly black and Puerto Rican coming from New York's major cities and or very poor white kids themselves. And so the dynamic was incredibly tense. There were there was not a lot of common ground. The guards were very poorly trained. And of course, when you're not trained well, you're scared. And when you're scared, uh, people respond with brutality. And of course, the prisoners themselves are in a place that's deeply overcrowded. And, uh, and you know, our, the, the prisons are filling at record numbers. So you can imagine there's racial tensions, there's not enough food, there's way too much repression just in the institution of the prison itself. So the guards are basically telling their union, something's going to blow here. The prisoners are actually writing letters to their state senators and, and the commissioner of corrections and basically say, please do something. They're not, they're not uh, threatening to take over. They're not trying to get out. They're just saying, you know, look, we are human beings. Can you please address these basic inequities? And the prison system does absolutely nothing. Uh, And so crisis just builds and builds. 
Can you walk us through the events that happened perhaps the day before and leading right up to the uh, uprising on September 9th, 1971? Sure. Um, Well, uh, you know, as I said, leading up to it, the major leading up to it was months and months of folks on the inside trying to seek remedy through the system, getting nowhere. Meanwhile, out in California, a very uh, well-respected prisoner by the name of George Jackson, who had himself been arrested um, for a theft of $77, I believe, and had gotten an indeterminate sentence of one year to, you know, whatever, you know, more than 70, and it could never get out. And so he was writing from inside a prison you know, real critique of the prison system. And he ends up murdered in San Quentin. And that is a really profound moment for the Attica prisoners, because they realize that if you're going to speak out, you know, not only will nothing happen, but you risk your life. And so there was a solidarity protest for George Jackson, just to kind of share that, just to indicate the mood. People are very worried and tense and angry. And the day before this all will jump off in what is uh, really an historic prisoner rights uprising, um, there is an altercation in the yard, you know, very similar to things that had happened between guards and prisoners, guards basically being very demanding of something that a prisoner would do. And this time the prisoner is just saying, look, no, you know, you're misunderstanding what's happening. You know, you're being unfair. And he, he pushes his hands on the guard. Well, that had really never happened. And he gets Mm. locked up that night um, and then on his cell block, taken away. And that really scares everybody because they're afraid he's going to be abused, killed. You know, it certainly happened. People got serious, serious beatings. They died. Um, And so everyone's on edge. And the next morning, when they go to, to to breakfast, everyone's very much on edge. But the reason why it all jumps off that next day is because the prison management makes this incredibly stupid decision to uh, lock up the company that this guy was on, lock him up, lock all of them up after breakfast without wreck, but didn't tell the guards moving them from the breakfast hall back to their cells that this long hallway they were all going to be in, that they normally would go out into the yard, that door was going to be locked. And they never told the guards running these 82 prisoners back to their uh, cell. They never explained to the prisoners what was going on. So they get to this gate and uh, this long hallway and they try to go to wreck and the door is locked and everyone's trapped in this hallway. And immediately uh, the prisoners feel like something terrible is going to happen. The guards are going to start descending upon them. The guards are terrified because they're there with nightsticks and with 82 men and all hell breaks loose. And basically in that completely crazy moment, a gate comes down to the midsection of the prison, which in turn uh, allows them to get the keys to the whole prison. And it's just a completely chaotic riot frankly, riot situation, very dangerous people hurting each other, exacting revenge for various petty grievances, grabbing guards that had been particularly brutal, beating them up, um, but also protecting some of the better guards and trying to usher them as hostages somewhere as a bargaining chip to get better conditions. And basically cooler heads prevail they move into one of the yards, and that begins really one of the most historic uprisings, I think, in American history uh, for better conditions. Calm prevails. It becomes an actual protest. 
So once the calm prevails and, and they've taken hostages, how, how do they organize inside? And, and how did they come up with the list of demands? And what were these demands? Well, when they first get out there, what was really extraordinary is that, as you know, one might imagine in a prison, there's all these factions and, you know, political factions and religious factions. But there was this really important sense on the part of the men in their black, white, Puerto Rican from whatever their walk of life, that this was an opportunity to bring the outside world in. This is what prisons really look like, juries that you're sending people to that you have no idea. And they were uh, they made a truce basically and said, let's work together. Um, each cell block elected a representative to speak for them uh, at a at a basically a negotiating table. They hauled out a PA system. They <laughs> uh, they began um, crafting what these demands were. They asked for observers to come in from the outside to help them negotiate with state officials to make the state officials negotiate in good faith. And they essentially began banging out what these demands would look like. There were several versions, um, but the ultimate version uh, had very, very uh, mundane things on it. You know, freedom to read uh, what you want to read, decent medical care, uh, Spanish-speaking guards. Uh, Consider that there's all these Puerto Rican um, prisoners inside, some of whom don't speak English. They're constantly in trouble because they're not understanding uh, whatever they're being told, everything at the negotiating table is being translated into Spanish for all of those prisoners. So it was, and everything is getting voted on. So it was a really extraordinary um, moment in participatory democracy. They set up a, you know, food distribution system, a medical tent, um, and uh, and soon there's four long days and long nights through the night of negotiations with state officials. Who gets called in to handle the the situation? Uh, Ultimately? Well, I mean, meanwhile, (laughs) while all these negotiations are going on, uh, every state trooper from New York and every off-duty guard, uh, prison guard, is descending on the outside of Attica. And, you know, we now know, I mean, I I wrote a book about this that took 13 years to write because the records still remain sealed and it was incredibly difficult to figure out what was actually going on. But what we now know is that, you know, the FBI is planting rumors on the scene, getting these guys incredibly riled up. Uh, There are uh, these guards and prison uh, guards and troopers on the outside are showing up with every possible weapon they own. They're distributing weapons like candy. Nobody's writing down the serial numbers and they're itching to get inside and get revenge. So while there's very productive negotiations going on on the inside, outside troopers are just clawing to get inside to retake this prison with force. And ultimately, uh, the governor of New York is the deciding factor because he could have, uh, at many opportunities, kept this negotiation going, come to a peaceful resolve, but instead uh, makes the extremely ill-fated decision to call in these troopers to storm the prison, even, we now know, when his own uh, general advisor and everyone on the scene is telling him, if you do this, it will be a massacre. And he makes the decision to do it anyway. Wow. How, how were the hostages being treated uh, during, during the four days that they were held 
Um, Were there any accounts from the survivors? Absolutely. Absolutely. I came to know both the the, uh, former prisoners, the, the surviving hostages, the judges, the lawyers. I mean, I spoke to so many people. And what was really incredible about the story of the hostages was that they were, of course, many were badly injured, the, the worst injured were actually gotten out of the prison by um, the, the prisoners in the early hours. The rest were surrounded by two rings of the Black Muslim prisoners to protect them. They got food first, they got the mattresses that dragged outside from the, the cells. And um, they reported, they brought the media in. The media, of course, is there recording all this. This is the first televised prison uprising. And they're telling the prison, they're telling the media, we're we're okay. And we actually want the governor to settle with these guys. Their demands are reasonable. Um, and uh, of course, the prisoners falsely thought that the lives of those men would matter to the governor and that by taking hostages and by treating them well, that that was going to ensure negotiations, and they could not have been more wrong. Uh, and on the you know on the, the the morning of the retaking, it's beginning to dawn on both the prisoners and the hostages that um, they're all dispensable. Frankly, uh, if it's going to come down to Governor Rockefeller showing that he's tough on crime at any cost. If they had come to some sort of agreement, do you believe that the negotiations would have been respected by the state? Were were they actually being made in good faith or, or were they just buying time? Well, it's interesting because I do think that there was a lot of slippage. I do think that there was things being agreed to that, in fact, once this would have been settled, there would have been a rolling back of. But remember that this is, again, a time of movement activism on the outside and the inside. And there would have been enormous pressure on the state of New York to hold uh, true to its word. They didn't want prisons erupting all over uh, the country, New York State uh, specifically. And I think that there would have been incredible movement, actually. And I think it was resolvable. They agreed to all but basically three of the demands. And one of the most important sticking points was amnesty for the prisoners. They were terrified of both legal ramifications and physical harm if they surrendered. And even though the governor kept saying, I can't give amnesty, the deepest irony of this is that years later, the story goes on for you know, 45 years and the book chronicles all of it that I wrote, including the criminal trials and, you know, civil trials, but ultimately amnesty is granted and and it it could have been granted on day one. And even if the governor didn't want to do that, he could have done what the observers wanted him to do, the neutral observers and said, show up to the prison, just assure these guys that they can surrender and they won't be harmed. And he wouldn't do it. Now, how do things go down after the fourth day that morning? Uh, at what point do things take a turn and negotiations stop? Well, this is one of the, uh, to me, you know, having recounted, you know, trying to recount the story, it was so difficult because this is the most, one of the most painful parts of the story. The morning of September 13th, when everything is going to become so horrific, the men inside actually think, the negotiations are still going on. And and I learned that that was because the state of New York very deliberately wanted them to think that. I saw a memo that said in big capital letters, 
do not give them, do not let them feel that they have an ultimatum. In other mm. words, uh, they, the, the, the state comes to the guard, to the gate, as it always did, and sort of said the same thing it always did every morning, which was, please let the hostages go. We've had enough of this time to move on. Let the hostages go. And because it was the same script of basically every day, the, the, the men voted. They said, no, we'd prefer not to. We want to keep negotiations going. But on this morning, uh, they became worried when they started to realize that it was very quiet. The, the observers had not gone down, come down yet. And they, they saw a helicopter come, come up over the prison. And the saddest part is that a cheer goes up because many of them think that Rockefeller is actually finally coming to the prison. But then this helicopter just kind of keeps going. And then they, they really start to panic because they realize that this is a reconnaissance kind of flyover to see the situation in the yard. And then they implemented this decision that they had. It was kind of the last ditch. If all hell breaks loose, this is what we'll do. They and the guard and the guards knew this, the hostages knew this, that they would take several of the hostages up on the catwalks, which you know uh, hovered above the, the yard where they were, and surround them with prisoners with these makeshift weapons, uh, you know, spears out of baseball bats, you know, makeshift shanks, and hold these uh, hostages up so that if the helicopter came back, the implication was, you know, you don't want to come in here because these are your employees. You need to protect them and we will harm them if you come in. But, but of course, up on the catwalk, these men are all terrified. You know, I, I, I take the readers up onto this one moment between a guard, Mike Smith and a prisoner, Don Noble, who they'd worked together in the metal shop and, and they're terrified and they're sharing, you know, they, they're, it's dawning on them how precarious this is. And they're saying, you know, Mike is saying to Don, you know, if I don't get out of here in my back pocket, I have a letter to my wife, Sharon, please tell her that I love her. I mean, they're, they're sharing particulars. And then as Mike says, you know, at that moment, uh, another helicopter comes over and he says that, that it's so close and so large that he can feel the concussion of the blades in his chest. And at that moment, they start dropping canisters of tear gas, CN and CS gas all over the yard, which immediately mows everybody down. They are vomiting. They are retching. They can't see. I mean, it's a, it's a powder, really, that's kind of sticking in people's uh, eyes and down their throat and up their nose. And at that moment, when everyone is basically rendered uh, unable to fight back, the uh, over 300 troopers set out and just guns blazing onto the catwalk, down into the yard. And within 15 minutes, it is complete carnage while you hear a helicopter circling overhead saying, surrender with your hands up and you won't be harmed. Surrender with your hands up and you won't be harmed to the sound of da 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 And it is a bloodbath. Afterward. How are the prisoners treated and uh, what happens immediately after the, the, the bloodbath, like you, you described it? Um, I, well, I know, what it, there's internal investigations, I'm assuming. Well, most horrifically, the first thing that happens is that the state of New York stands out in front of that prison where there are in, reporters from all over the world, the New York Times, the LA Times, and it says to the American people who had been very sympathetic to prison rights reform, basically, 
the prisoners have just murdered the hostages. They have slit their throats. One of them castrated one of the hostages, shoved his testicles in his mouth. Three of the three of the hostages were already dead in the yard. And they said, we saw all this. We can corroborate it. And that story went out on the front page of the New York Times, the front page of the L.A. Times, the AP and the UPI. So in every small town in America. And that was deeply consequential. I just need to say that we took a turn in that moment and began embracing a level of punitive carceral policy that we have still not stepped back from and with enormously negative consequences for our country. What in fact was happening was that the prisoners and the guards had been killed by state troopers and that the prisoners, meanwhile, were being forced to strip naked. They were being forced to crawl and run over glass while they were being beaten. Every window has been shot out of this prison. They are being beaten within an inch of their life. They're being tortured. And I do mean tortured for days on end. Nobody's letting anyone in there to help them. Lawyers aren't allowed in. Doctors who do try to show up are basically asked to leave. It is a horror zone. But the American people, meanwhile, are sending telegrams basically calling for the death penalty for the first time, that there'd been a moratorium calling for stronger prisons, basically saying that the prisoners are animals and brutes, that this wasn't about prisoner rights, civil rights is a lie. So those next moments were deeply consequential for American history, not just the lives of these men. And the short story, or the long story short, is that then a commission, you know, lots of commissions, lots of investigations, but ultimately the most important one was the state of New York's own that was set up by the governor. The same troopers that retook that prison got to investigate what happened there. And no troopers ever get indicted, but 62 prisoners get indicted. And there begins a whole period of criminal trials. And also one of the most important uh, defense efforts in American history, really extraordinary that goes on uh, you know, ordinary young people just, you know, in law students and lawyers descend on upstate New York to help defend these guys. But uh, but then it's not over because then there's going to be a civil trial. So it takes basically 45 years for these men to tell their story of what happened to them. And uh, and the consequences are ones that every American citizen listening to this lives with. It's why we have more. It's one of the key reasons why we have more people in prison than any other country on the planet. Wow. So we always ask our guest experts this question. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the Attica prison uprising, who or what would that be? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) In the immediate moment, if I have to pick one, of course, it is the governor of New York. And frankly, every person with power that at any point could have done the right thing from the moment that this went down to giving justice to the prisoners and the guards, member guards have been killed too thereafter, but at a deeper level, and I know this is, I'm giving you more than you asked, but at a deeper level, (laughs) who is responsible is the American people because we every single day send people into institutions that we don't have a clue what goes on inside of them. And we allow those institutions to operate with impunity. We fund them better than we fund our public schools. We throw money at them, even though the recidivism rate, which is basically the failure rate 
is upwards of 75%. And we allow the most unimaginable brutality to go in. And we tell ourselves that's because the people who have committed crime deserve this. That's not what our justice system is. Our justice system is time served. It is not abuse on top of time served. It is not uh, torture on top of time served. And the fact that this was able to happen is in part, in large part, because we as taxpayers do not demand 100% transparency from these institutions that in fact keep our mothers, our fathers, our children, our aunts, our uncles. And if our if our family members aren't in there, it's only because we have enough resources to give them alternatives and to protect them if they fall afoul of the law. So ultimately, uh, Attica's can happen because we all turn a blind eye. And Attica's, the potential for an Attica happening is every day in America because we still we have 77,000 children in this country still in prison, many of whom are serving, who are doing solitary confinement. I mean, we need to open the doors on our prisons that we pay for. Dr. Thompson, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Alarmist. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. Incredible that we got to have Dr. Thompson on our show mm-hmm. today. Uh, so much yep. uh, to unpack. And I mean, she was so thorough and uh, a much better understanding of, of, of this, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even better than after doing a little deep dive ourselves. Oh, yeah. It really um, kind of brought into light the uh, like the importance of this singular moment yes. in history and like yeah. the, the effects that it's still that are still playing out and affecting prison systems today. Like I, you know, I was familiar, but you I guess it gets lost or maybe it wasn't emphasized enough how detrimental this was to yes. our ideas of prisons. And it's truly heartbreaking. Yeah, exactly. And and the fact also that as she mentioned, nothing really has changed. Right. Um, however, what was what was happening at the time was there was sort of more of a collective consciousness of, or sort of a movement towards um, civil rights at the time. And mm-hmm. now we just don't we just don't have that. So the conditions are the same. However, we just there's less or awareness. Worse, she said, which is like yeah. kind of the scary thing. Well, <laughs> that current she, conditions she said, are worse. Yeah, she said they were actually a little better, or at least there was hope that they were going to improve. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they, it, this was a moment where things really took a turn, and important that we we know about it. Um, we talked a little bit about this during the episode, but the significance of the first comments by the state yes. outside the prison really mm-hmm. was really striking, and about how that was carried by all the major news outlets. Yes, and basically shifted the perspective of the populace about what was going on at prisons and what, what we needed to do to prisoners. They wanted us to crack down, make it worse, make it harder. It's, it's terrible. Interesting that there were, you know, that there were lawyers there at the time, but they weren't allowed in the prisons at all. It's like, I, I just, I don't know, maybe it's just the different times, but, um, or maybe it's something that's racially motivated, but it's just kind of amazing that they, or maybe they were fighting to like try and reveal what was actually happening and they just weren't given the opportunity to, but it just, it feels like if something like this were to happen, I'd like, I would hope if something like this were to happen today, there would be more of a like investigation mm. versus like, just take their kind of word for it and then, and run with it. Um, and maybe it, the fact that it, the truth finally came out as a result of like the fact that there were, people lawyers activists right. the prison themselves like no that we're going to tell yes. the true story it's mm-hmm. just amazing that it takes so long yes it took so long we're not gonna let you to get away out. with it. it it's like they were they didn't want they weren't gonna let them get away with it but at the same time it's 45 years you're 45 years of fighting and think about the lives of these prisoners yeah. and uh, yeah it's a it feeds into what we talked about too That's was like lifetime. this the um uh the kind of like i think we termed it the racially motivated structural inhumanity is the is the f- phrase that Sean our <laughs> guest coined uh-huh. but we did talk a lot that about that a lot in our episode just like the system right mm-hmm. like it's it's a big system that um 
there's a lot of money and manpower behind and it's easy to yeah kind of keep that system going because it's working for some, even though it's really at the detriment of so many others. Something Dr. Thompson said uh, that I wrote down, which I thought was pretty on point, was wh- when you're not trained well, you're scared. And that yes. leads to brutality. And that kind of goes along with not just maintenance, which I know that we're huge we, we love maintenance here. Um, mm-hmm. But that's also, that's training. Right. Yeah. There, there's a, Which is a, a, an extension of maintenance, well, right? Europe, Europe, in Europe, there are countries that go about prison totally differently. And it's, it's, it's more about, um, what's it called? It's more rehabilitation. about re- rehabilitation yeah. as opposed to yeah. punitive punishment, whatever. In Germany, I read that they're, they train their guards for two years. And they basically train them like you would maybe train like a uh or, or what do you call it? like a social worker mm-hmm. they they train them to and they encourage them to talk to the prisoners and yeah. you know cuz what they're trying to do is re you know reengage the prisoners with society and Nor- norway is like famously low recid- recidivism because of these same things these same principles um and in america it's just a tragedy that it's it, it, that it's just about punishment and it's just about just these brutal conditions and nobody cares. She's right. Nobody cares. I think Dr. Thompson said it too. You know, it was a good reminder, like our, our justice system is about time served, not torture and abuse on top of that. Right. And it really does seem to be the way that we approach it here in prisons and also just policing in general is like us versus them. Mm. It's very punitive. It's very like adversarial based. Like everything is like they're out to get you bad guy and of course you're going to be terrified because if you think that you're constantly going to get killed right. unless you kill like right. or attack unless you get attacked it's like what kind of mind game is that to be mm-hmm. existing in every day when you're trying to rehabilitate someone you know no one idea. is being set up for success mm-hmm. yeah yeah 75 percent is what she said yeah the, uh, of failure rate yeah. we have and apparently we're just okay with 75 percent failure totally. right? and we throw exactly. our money at it yeah. huge money yeah. so much money so let's talk about what she ended up saying uh, what did we end up sending to the alarmist jail sure we threw mostly motivated i'm sorry racially motivated structural structural humanity i'm gonna say that again <laughs> Racially motivated structural inhumanity was thrown in the alarmist jail, and we gave the big slap to Rockefeller, the mm-hmm. governor. I mean, I, I thought it was on point. She she sent the American people to the alarmist jail. Yeah, yeah. which Al- I feel like is the uh, I feel like that is the term that that Sean kind of coined. But I also just kind of like the simplicity of like America. Just America. I like American you're the, people. You're to blame. Yeah. <laughs> well, like I mean, we created the system, so why not just say American people, right? And we're allowing it to continue. <laughs> sure, we live in a yeah. democracy. Right? We could, we could, we could protest. We could be more active about, you know, demanding more from that institution. Um, mm-hmm. We just simply don't. We're sort of bystanders. So, what do we think? Are we going to put ourselves in jail? I think we th- I think we can. I mean, yeah. I do think this is on us and I and I feel like we circled on that in our initial conversation too where it's like to her point like we just Dr. Thompson's point that we um agree to this. Like we 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 throw people in a place that we have no idea how it's run. Mm-hmm. We have there's no accountability. It's like they're self-policing themselves. Yeah. And we fund it and 
the 75% failure rate, but we keep, it's like, why, if any other institution like were like that, I mean, schools are like that. And I think some people, more people care, but not enough, but like, there would be a little bit more of an uproar, but for yeah. some reason we're fine with just kind of discarding these human lives as if they don't matter. And like she said, if it's not, if if it's your family and you have the resources, you can kind of skirt around that. That's mm-hmm. terrible. So I, I think I'm going to call it. Okay. American people, you're going to the alarmist jail. So what's our population? Uh, fact checker. <laughs> Like where, where are we at right now? Because <laughs> I'm worried about the prison conditions getting worse because of overpopulation. No, we, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not what we. Uh, In our prison, for. by the way, it's more of a rehabilitation center. Absolutely. We've been saying this yes. from the beginning. Absolutely, okay. we have been saying that. There's um, classes. You can get an education. Yes, are, people are met with uh, open arms and. Uh, the possibility and hope for um, improvement. So what what is the number? 332 <laughs> million. 332 million as of 2021. Okay. Okay, that's plus, a lot. Plus our, our existing uh, residents. So it's pretty high. That's, yeah, it's pretty high. <laughs> well, well, we'll have to kind of put our heads together and figure this one out later, uh, but not yeah. right now. Um, stay tuned because next week we are going to be discussing capitalism. The big C. Erios. Powered by ACAS. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.